Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and I'm joined by the uh, the usual crew, Heidi White, Tim McIntosh. Happy Thanksgiving. Welcome back to the podcast. We are here to discuss A River Runs Through It. But first, we ha- I have to ask, pumpkin pie or pecan pie? Tim. It's not an either or, David. It's not an... It just... Oh, it's not an... Sometimes we look at the world as... <laughs> The world is not black and white. Sometimes it's gray. And gray is a mixture of two things. And in our hearts, we can both love pecan pie and pumpkin pie. Heidi, well, set them straight or agree? I, I mean, I totally agree. But if I had to choose, it would be pecan. And I just always accept the premise of your questions, David. And I probably should question them more. But I am going to go with pecan. Hey, I'm not saying you can't love them both. I'm just asking in that in your loves, can there still be a hierarchy? I like a little crunch. I like a little texture in my pie. So I'm going to go with yeah. pecan. That's fair. I, I, I'm just going to say because we need, you know, to start this episode off with a little bit of a little <laughs> bit of debate, a little bit of controversy. controversy. I'm, I'm going to say the thing that is not controversial and said, I think that pumpkin pie is better than pecan pie. Oh, but okay. at least none of us oh, are saying David. pecan. Oh, right. Thank you. So many things to take a stand on in life. You I know, know right? Especially know. when it comes to food and Thanksgiving. And I don't even know if I really believe that about pumpkin pie, but I had to say the opposite of Heidi. <laughs> right. Yes, that's, that's a trend. But uh, Tim, how was your Thanksgiving? It was great. I visited Idaho, Moscow, Idaho for the first time to see some friends. Appropriate and... given the book we're about to start. Yes, that's right. I'm and aware I that it doesn't take place in Idaho. What's that? I'm aware that it doesn't take place in Idaho, but it's the same general part of the world. It is. It's very... I wonder how far I was from the Blackfoot River. Will We can discuss that later on. Yeah. Heidi, what about you? How was your Thanksgiving? It was great. I didn't get to cook as much as I wanted, but I did have a great time. So how is Costco's pecan pie? Well, I we did not... So I am on a sugar-free 2019 and I did stick to it over Thanksgiving. So So I didn't have any pie at all, but I did feel... Heidi, wait. You have not had sugar for the last 11 months? It's true, except for two exceptions. One was my birthday um, and... David did indeed make me a dessert on my birthday that I ate. It was delicious. Um, and you were there, Tim. And I, then, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, we were all there, guys. Everyone was invited. <laughs> um, and then I also had sugar on my anniversary cruise with my husband when we went to France. And I will tell you this. I went off sugar because I have a problem with insomnia, which is something we talked about on the air before we talked about Hemingway and, um, and it helps like immensely. If I'm off sugar, it really helps me sleep better. And when we went to France, we did like an eight day cruise. And so I had several desserts over the course of the cruise. And by the end of the week, I wasn't sleeping again. It took me like a month to recover. So I'm real firm on this no sugar thing, but it does really put a damper on Thanksgiving. It's really a bummer. Who needs to sleep Thanksgiving weekend anyway? (laughs) Well, I don't know. Heidi, I'm just, I'm amazed at the willpower. Sugar is not just for, I mean, sugar is in everything. Bit of honey. It's in everything. (laughs) It's in definitely in bit of honey. (laughs) 
Um, it's time to end this recording. It's in canned, it's in canned fruit. It's in yeah. so many things that we buy in cans. So I'm I'm really impressed. Like, you I'm amazed. Cans. That was great. <laughs> no, because because it's like no one. Ex- I did a sugar free diet for a while. I've done it a few times. And if you're really strict about it, and you start looking at anything, a pasta sauce. It's in pasta sauce. No, you know. I know. I have cooked a lot in more fact, this year. In fact. If you look at original pasta sauce and pizza sauce, like if you look at recipes that are hundreds of years old, sugar in pizza sauce is one of the key ingredients in the original marinara sauce. So really? It's that not like, really that's delicious. not something that was like, it's 1974 and we want to add sugar to it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. We're really speaking there, but, um, but you know, clearly <laughs> Tim, there, David? Tim clearly survives on canned food. Much like he would were he on a fishing expedition in the Montana wilderness, which brings us to the book. Well done. Nicely done. We are here to discuss over the next three weeks, A River Runs Through It, which is a novella, a short novel, or a long short story, however you want to put it, by Norman McLean. And Tim, this is a book that you have been uh, lobbying for I feel like lobbying is a better word than begging. Lobbying for 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 years, I think, yes. probably, um, for us to do on this podcast. So we we are now going to do it. Um, I want to remind people how they can join the conversation. If you have never done so, you can join the conversation on Facebook. You can just search Close Reads Podcast Discussion Group. You can join the group and jump in and ask questions and comments on other people's wildly inaccurate comments and things like that. You can also, you know... Uh, lay claim to the opposite side of whatever Heidi says on this podcast if you if you so desire. You can also email us by emailing closereadspodcast at gmail.com. In three weeks, well, I guess two weeks from now or the third episode on this book, we will answer your questions. So you can send your questions to that email address. Again, closereadspodcast at gmail.com or you can post them on the Facebook group. And of course, you can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter at closereadspods. The reading schedule for this, I'm just going to say it now. I posted it online, but the reading schedule is going to be as follows. This being the week of December 2nd, we are recording today on December 2nd. We're going to do the first half of the story, ending roughly around page 63, which kind of ends in the middle of of a scene. There's not a clear place to break in this story. And then next week, we'll finish it. And then the week of December 16th, we will do the Q&A. And then we will dive into uh, Leif Enger's uh, um, uh, Peace Like a River. Wow, lots of river stuff here at the end of of 2019. Uh, So that's the... uh, the administrative stuff to get out of the way. So that brings us to the book itself. And Tim, I want to start with you because as I said, this is something of a, to borrow your own phrase, something of a heart book for you. Yeah. Why so is my first question. And if you'd like, that can be the only question you can just talk for the next 45 minutes. (laughs) There are two reasons. um, And I don't know which one to approach first. I, I think when I was lobbying for this book, I thought, you know, part of the reason this is your heart book, Tim, is because um, it's so similar to your life. There's the, it's the story of two sons and it's mainly about their relationship, these brothers, but it's also about their relationship to this town in Montana where they live. And there's also this relationship between the storyteller and his father that just kind of reminds me of my relationship with my dad. Um, Mm -hmm. The father in the story is just this really wise, thoughtful man. And he's a very eloquent preacher. And 
he's also, he's an artist. He's an artist of a very high order, but his art is fly fishing. And mm. boy, it reminds me so much of, the father reminds me so much of my dad. And that's a very high compliment to my dad. I thought for a while that maybe this is one of my heart books because I have such a personal relationship, it feels like, with the characters. But I reread it this summer and I'm rereading it now. And I actually think it's an extraordinary book on its own merits. It's not just that I have an affection for it. I do. But I just think it is so well done. It's so beautifully told. It's so succinctly told. And the, the voice of the narrator is such a unique voice. It has this very wry sense of humor um, kind of laced throughout the book. But it's also just, it's beautiful. I mean, he makes mm -hmm. fly fishing. It's almost an instructional book on how to fly fish. And he makes fly fishing. And on Montana riveting. geography. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on all these things. And yeah. he makes them so interesting. And it's, it's almost a recipe for boredom, but it's so well done. It's so elegantly told. It's a, for me, it's a page turner. Mm. So when I was thinking about exactly how to approach this book, I, I debated, you know, I, I, we talked a little bit about how many episodes we should do on this book and all that. And I was thinking we could do four episodes. You could do three plus the Q and a, but you know, there's, it's, it's not terribly long. So you can only read, so you know, can only cover so many weeks on it. It seemed like a good one to do between the holidays. And part of that is because of the way it sort of sort of lingers in the artistry of fly fishing and the descriptions and the place. And there's a sense in which you can read it. You know, it's great to read it really slowly, but at the same time, it is kind of a page turner, as you said. And I was, I was trying to imagine like, where are we going to stop reading for each section? Because as I said, there's not chapters or even parts that are very clear. And so I got to thinking, well, that, that that is going to be a problem with how we decide exactly what to talk about. <laughs> and um, you know, sometimes it's easy to say, you know, these are the clear questions for these couple of chapters that we're talking about for this week. Like when we do a, a novel and we do three, four chapters, there's a clear theme that tends to pop up in each chapter. That's kind of the point of a chapter, right? But with this, we're going to have to kind of sort of focus on a couple things in this book. And I thought. I thought there's two things that in particular are interesting to me and I want to hear what each of you think. And this is a little bit of, you know, behind, behind the scenes type of conversation that we'll have on the air. The prose, as you mentioned, is so precise and so economical and, and very poetic. And then there's also this sort of analogy of fly fishing as an art um, where I guess maybe it's not even an analogy. It's just this description of fly fishing as an art, which allows the author to sort of contemplate the nature of art in and of itself. And so I'm wondering, those two things are obviously very related. The, the sort of the economy of his prose and then his, con his ruminations, I guess, on the nature of, of art and practicing art and, all the, and experimenting and things like that. But I want to know, what are the things that are most interesting to each of you on this book? Things that, you know, that, we should, that, we, that you'd like us to focus on over these, these two episodes. And then the third episode is obviously dedicated to the things that our audience is, is interested in. So, Tim, you just got to talk for a second. So I'd love to hear, what, Heidi, what, you, what you're thinking on this. What, what, what in particular really stands out? You knew that Tim loves this book going into it, but it's, you haven't read it before, right? Right. Okay. So you knew that he loved it. What has been the thing that stands out to you as you've been reading it this first time? As you pointed out, I've 
I've never read this before. I can't believe I've never read this before. This is, I'm crazy about this story. I love, I've read it twice and listened to it on Audible uh, in a week period. I love this story. Keep it up, um, Heidi. I love oh, it. I just, and so I think what stood out to me first um, was the craft of the writing. Both of you have mentioned that. It's absolutely stunning writing. I texted Tim last night and said, I love this story. It's reading it is like, to me, it's the equivalent of you guys watch the Olympics, you know, in the Olympics, when you're watching some like a skill sports, like figure skating, and I'm a lady, I like to watch figure skating. (laughs) So, um, and you know, those like incredibly hard jumps, like the, the triple axle, that's just like the most difficult jump and, and they fall all the time and it's okay because it's so hard, but then you see somebody just land it and it's just so satisfying to watch. And, and that reading this story was the equivalent of that to me in terms of the craft of the writing, like every sentence he just nails every, the subtleties and the delicacy of this story, all the threads he throws out having to do with the relationships and the themes and the fishing and all of that. Is it an allegory? Is it a fishing story? It's just, he ties it all together so beautifully throughout the whole story that it really is like watching, um, you know, I felt like I'm the lady in the overalls standing behind him as he's fishing on the river saying, <laughs> my, my. Like, um, uh, so I think that stood out to me first. And then the second thing I loved was um, the contemplation. This is going to come as no surprise to either of you or our listeners is that the contemplation of the characters through the lens of fishing. It's, okay. I'm always interested in characters. So... Yeah. Okay. So care. So I'm writing this stuff down here. Uh, craftsmanship and the prose characters through the sort of. Yeah. The metaphor. analogy, as you point out, I mean, the fishing story stands on its own. You could just read it for the fishing story and it, it works, but there's so much shining through that. And that, you know, like the light on the water, that's, that's what I was looking at probably the, the most closely. Tim, anything else you want to add to this? Uh, one thing I was thinking is, next week we can focus a lot on plot um, and then some of the things that he does with how the characters evolve and change and with the kind of structure of the story that he's telling. But given that I don't want to spoil too much right now and we're reading a novella like this, I was thinking we should save that. And this week we can focus on some of these things like, why is this so well-written? Like pro from a prose perspective, what is he doing that, that he does so well? But is there anything else that you would add to this list here? I think the relationship of the narrator whose name is Norman to his younger brother, Paul is the it's, I think it's the heartbeat of the plot. It's like McLean. It's the heartbeat of the plot. And part of the reason it's so compelling is that Paul, we're going to find out pretty soon has a very destructive bent. And he also has, he's also, he is the fly fisherman of Montana. There is no one who can fish quite like Paul. He's an artist of the highest caliber. He surpassed Norman. He surpassed his father. He kind of doesn't have a rival. And yet he seems to be on this kind of self-destructive bent. And Norman, the main character, doesn't know what to do for him. He loves him. Everyone who meets Paul loves him and everyone also knows that he is um driving himself off a cliff like both literally and figuratively 
<laughs> and for me, that's, I keep, I mean, I just keep, I think of people in my life that are, that I love, I love so much and they are driving toward a chasm and they keep their sort of intent on driving toward a chasm. And it seems like there's nothing you can do. The people who love them oftentimes feel like there's just nothing that can be done. And that, mm. that tragedy, I think, drives this story forward. Mm. Plus, he looks like Brad Pitt. Plus, he looks like Brad Pitt. I mean, how, who could, who else could possibly play this character? Though? Of course, it was the young Brad Pitt. He was well, like this character. Yeah, it's interesting because it, I, I was, as I was reading, I was trying to remember or trying to find. Does it does it say that he is extraordinarily good looking in the book, or was that something that like the movie just knew that? It, when they made when Robert Redford made the movie, he knew that he had to sort of capture the the mysterious essence of Paul as a character, and that to do that, to to really get across what the book is trying to get across about him, he had to be you know the world's sexiest man or something. <laughs> Which really, that's a high bar. <laughs> it's a high bar. Brad Pitt is a high bar. Um, it doesn't I say. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it, it says. says, but it does. He is um, very capable with the ladies it does it, say it that. would be a little weird if he was like just if it went out of its An way to ogre. say how, how oh yeah how bad, <laughs> bad looking he was well let's um go ahead Heidi I have one more um and it's this this kind of sweeping thematic contemplation of the nature of art and uh, the relationship between nature and art so it's interesting what about that, you David well, let me, I was, yeah, I was, I was going, I was going, but thanks for asking. Um, so you, you guys, um, mentioned the craftsmanship and the prose, which is something that I've definitely been thinking a lot about. And I want to kind of, I, I've very reminded of Hemingway as I've been reading this time, but you, the word relationship has come up multiple times. There's the relationship between, um, Norman and Paul between nature and art, um, between fishing and the, and each of the people, you know, the relationship between the characters and fishing itself and that concept of relationship as, as in like two things, either being bound together or being divided is something that I was noticing a lot as I was reading that as an analogy throughout the whole book. And I think that that, what I'm interested in is how that is very tied up in the concept of the really skillful prose, the craftsmanship of the prose. So I'd like to start there because I think that it weaves a couple of these things together. Um, and if you look, let's start with the very beginning because the very beginning from the get go, something, the, some of the words that he uses stood out to me because he keeps coming back to this image of, well, in the first sentence it says in our family, there was no clear line between religion and fly fishing. We lived at the junction of great trout rivers in Western Montana and our father was a Presbyterian minister and a fly fisherman who tied his own flies and taught others. And so from the get-go, we have two images that stood out to me. Clear lines and junctions. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that the, you know, that image, you, he keeps coming back to it, even in how he's describing nature. There's something, I think I counted something like 25 times he mentions, um, and that, that's just a guess, but it's, I think it's 20, north of 20 in the first 60 pages, times that he mentions rivers, either coming together or veering off. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that seems to be mirroring a lot of what he's doing with, with these characters, particularly with, with the struggle that he has with how to deal with this problem brother that he has. And, and it got me thinking you know, a lot about 
what is the, <laughs> I, I had all these, you know, kind of extra literary questions, like what's the most healthy way to help his brother here? <laughs> and it seems to be the question of, do you, do you come, do you, do you allow yourself to get close or do you force yourself to veer off? seems to be this really important question in all the inter sort of in, in all the interpersonal relationships going on here. But also that's the question about fishing, right? <laughs> like how close do you get to the fish? How, how much nor you know, there's all these strategic questions that a good fly fisherman has that, that are so, so tied to the same questions that Paul is having or Norman is having about how to deal with his brother, Paul. Um, do you, do you guys feel like, uh, well, Tim, I think you're, you want to say something. It looked like maybe you want to say something. Well, I, I, I think you're tapping, I think you're tapping into something that's like really, um, it's vital to understanding this book. And I think, I think we see it on that first page. There's no distinction between in, in this family, between fly fishing and religion. And I want to underscore for anyone who's not been fly fishing, maybe they don't live in the part of the country that's conducive to fly fishing. I grew up, and I'm going to say this with a slight sneer, I grew up a bait fisherman. Paul and Norman McLean would look down their nose at me as a bait fisherman. You know, like I would, I would sling a worm out to the middle of the pond that I was fishing with a big hook on it. And there's, there's, there's not a lot of art to that. Fly fishing is something very, very different. After I saw this movie, I completely fell in love with fly fishing. I, I like wanted to buy my own rod. One of my like, best friends bought me a rod for college graduation. And I started going out on a river and like hacking away with this fly rod. And it is an abs, it is so difficult to cast a line. And there's something you it requires so much finesse and so much practice um, that it is, it's it's not. It's not just trying to trick a fish. It's so much more complex and elegant than that. And so I think that the thing that you're seeing, David, like there are all these kind of intersections and delineations. Um, I think the thing to, that we'll see in this book is that fly fishing is not just a recreational activity. It borders on the sublime in this book. Mm. Yeah, the f- fishing is the religion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. And by the way, David, I, I think this might be a good moment. There's a there's a moment early in the book where um, Paul and Norman talk about Isaac Walton's The Complete Angler. Yeah. So for me, it's on page five. And Paul, as a young man, reads Isaac Walton's The Complete Angler. He says, the bastard doesn't even know how to spell complete. Because... <laughs> In the original title, The Complete Angler, it's C-O-M-P-L-E-A-T instead of P-L-E-T-E. Um, I, I think that that book is mentioned very deliberately in the beginning of this book because the author is kind of telling us the nature of the book that he's writing. It's kind of like The Nature of the Complete Angler by Isaac Walton. And this book, this is a classic. Isaac Walton's The Complete Angler is a classic, not just for fly fishermen. Um, but it stood the test of time. It's still being published today. You can find it in any major library. Isaac Walton is a contemporary-ish. He's like 30 years younger than Shakespeare. He's friends with John Donne. 
And The Complete Angler is ostensibly about how to catch fish. What are the right flies to carry? What are the right hooks to carry? It's sort of tackle. But it really is this kind of, it's this examination of the art of fly fishing and it has strong spiritual overtones to it. And so I think that McLean, the author, is telling us early in this book, this is the sort of book that I'm writing. It's not the complete angler, but it's seeking to accomplish the same things. Hmm. And along with that, Tim, I think it also tells us something about Paul because this is in the same kind, same same part of the story in which we learn that Paul is very resistant to authority and to institutions um, and thinks, you know, he has so much confidence in himself. He's willing to bet on himself, a phrase that uh, is used, that Norman uses a couple of times to describe Paul. And so it's in, it's Paul setting himself as knowing more about fishing than the complete angler. Right. (laughs) Right. So there's, um, which is basically the fishing Bible. Mm -hmm. So in, in, you know, in one hand, as you said, there's, he's, um, Norman McLean is drawing a comparison between the complete angler and this story. And while on the other hand, kind of subverting even that because Paul knows better than Isaac Walton, who's an Episcopalian, which I think is hilarious because he would have been in the Church of England, um, even though he was a Shakespearean contemporary. So it's it's just a funny little scene. Well, even the Presbyterian versus Episcopalian Mm -hmm. is another kind of divergence uh, that that the book is the book Mm -hmm. is offering us. Like the people are constantly having to make choices between things that seem to be opposing over very, I I don't want to, I don't, this might sound controversial, but over minutia. Mm -hmm. I I mean, there's obviously big differences between Presbyterianism and Episcopalianism. Let's not get into the theology of that, but it's essentially in the details, right? Well, as you pointed out, David, you're exactly right. It's about the relationship between things, the fine distinctions between things, right? We're not little river fishermen. We're big river fishermen. We're not this, we're that. We're not this, we're that. That's from the very beginning of the story. There's a lot of, we're not this, we're that. We're Montanans. We're not Idahoans. Family, right? Yeah. 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 That's that's why I'm so intrigued that they say we lived at the junction of great trout rivers. Like we're not this, we're that but we live at the junction of these things and we're constantly having to decide what it is we are and what it is we're not. And I mean, he kind of, you know, he drops that, these themes into the book with such a light touch. You know, it's not, it's there, it's right in front of us if we're looking for it, right? If we're we're reading closely, but it's not like it's bashing us over the head. Um, It, you know, it's there in the text. It's, it's, it's there in the themes, but it's still developing the characters. You know, it's, it's not like trying to be, you know, Pilgrim's progress or something. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, and there's this very strong sense from the very beginning, and this speaks to the craft um, of the tenuous balance. Like it's something feels like a thread's about to break throughout the Mm. whole story, even from the very beginning. Um, there's these strong declarations of identity, right? The word, 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 this, not that, but even somehow the reader has this sense that it's a very tenuous balance and that something's about the fall. You know, he, he, 
he even says somehow he got in his head that man fell from a tree right in the garden of Eden, that there's, there's just this sense of precariousness. Something's about to fall kind of throughout the whole, you know, that this is going to somehow have sadness and grief in it, but you're not sure from the beginning because it seems pretty happy from the beginning. Yeah. But there's Idyllic still almost. somehow, yes, but somehow woven into this is this sense of of, of tenuous kind of house of cards feeling to it. Yeah. Speaks I think you're right. Junctions. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why you want to keep reading is because you sort of know something is not quite right here. Mm-hmm. And on the first read, especially, you don't know exactly what it is. Um David, I wonder if you were about to say something, but I was wondering if now might be a good time to just do a little bit of a plot overview of these first 60-some pages. Yeah, go for it. Um, the story, it, it kind of revolves around this pretty simple happening that Norman, the main character's brother-in-law, is going to come to town. And this brother-in-law um, is the brother of Jesse. Norman's wife. So um, Jesse is coming to town. He's kind of, he's off at college and Paul and Norman think that he, his name's Neil. He, <laughs> he's not the real deal. He's kind, kind of, of a dandy. Poser. Yeah. He's a dandy. He likes when he's away from Montana, he likes to talk up that he's from Montana, but when he's in Montana, Real Montanans know this is not our kind of people. So he shows up at the train station as an example. And like Heidi said earlier, he's got, he's got two sweaters on and he's got a <laughs> monogram suitcase. And Paul and Norman are like, what in the world? This is not what Montanans do. But Jesse, Norman's wife, and her mother really want Norman to take the brother-in-law, to take Neil out on the river to show him a good time because they kind of sense that Neil is drifting. Maybe he's drifting away from the family. Maybe he's just drifting away from kind of like any sort of like sort of integrity or principles that he might've had in his upbringing. And so the plot kind of begins with Norman and Paul, two avid, brilliant fishermen agreeing to take Neil out fishing and all sorts of jokes ensue that, you know, Neil's probably going to show up with, uh, you know, a can of earthworms, you know, which is just a pox upon him for even suggesting such a thing. And of course that's exactly what he does when they go out fishing. Um, and so we kind of find out that Neil is a little bit of a, I don't know, maybe, maybe slightly debauched. He's been citified and he, kind of leans close to the <laughs> she's the town whore rawhide and she tells her him excuse me he tells her all sorts of grand stories about you know his exploits and the people who are overhearing him are like you never did this the local native american hears the stories it's like you never did this, this is just not true so the plot is very simple in that Paul and Norman have been recruited by Norman's family on kind of a rescue mission to get Paul to go fishing, to kind of get and to kind of like bring him back into the family some way. I think that's probably enough to, for the plot um, for the first 60 some pages. Did I leave anything out, Heidi, David? They get caught in the rainstorm and then the, 
because they had left them walking up the river. Did you say that? No, I did not leave. Yeah, they, they, they do take them out and they get caught in the rainstorm and he's kind of escaped the rainstorm while they're look out looking for him and he's safe and sound in, in the truck. In my edition, the, the break of the page numbers is where right where they have gone off to the cabin in the mountains for a few days. Yes. And yeah, he said, he asked his wife, yeah. do you think it would be a good idea if me and Paul went to the mountains? And she says, yes, I think it would be a good yeah. idea. Yeah. Because she is frustrated at him despite Norman's, despite Norman's efforts to kind of like help Paul, excuse me, to help Neil. Neil keeps kind of running off. He doesn't really want to be there. But when Norman and Paul come back, Jesse, Norman's wife, is really frustrated at him that he has not done enough. And I, for me, I wonder how you guys felt for me. I, I think because I'm so close with the narrator, he's the one who's telling me the story. It feels that his wife's accusations are just so unfair feeling mm. because he's doing everything that he well, can. Yeah. That, so that he brings me to help. That, that brings me to a question that I had because our narrator is his sort of dilemma, if you will, is, is how do I help all these people who need help? Yeah. It's like, he's the, you know, there's this concept of the black sheep or the Irish sheep or whatever that's, that's brought up in, in this book. And he seems to be the, the son who turned out. Okay. Right. He's got his life fallen order and you know, he's got a bank account and a steady job and he's not just, you know, some journalist who mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, kind of gets journalism kind of a bad name in this book. Huh? But but he, he's got everything sort of in order. And so the dilemma is how do I help these people who don't want to be helped? Or if they do, they can't ask for it. Mm-hmm. And so he's stuck between all the people who are pushing him to help them and people who don't want to be helped. And, and who's, who, who's prompts in that, in that sort of uh, conflict do you most respect? That seems yeah. to be the big dilemma. And so I was wondering, do you, well, Heidi, I'll ask you this. Do you think that he is doing enough to help the people around him? This, and, and, and you know, I, I, when I thought of asking you this first, I, this didn't occur to me, but you also do have some, uh, you know, if you were, if he was sitting in a chair in an office <laughs> and he was paying you <laughs> to listen right. to him talk, <clears throat> what advice would you give him? <laughs> yeah, this, I mean, this is a story that is, the kind of critic like me, a very psychological kind of reader. It's like meat and drink to people like us. We love this <laughs> <Yeah>. stuff. <laughs> um, um, it's so layered. Um, but yeah, what I want to ask him is, I, I guess, I mean, I, I would turn it back on him, right? Like, do you think you're doing enough? Like he's so, this idea of help and helplessness is a driving, probably the driving force of the action of this story. Um, There's way more going on than the action of the story, but this is the driving force of the action is people are trying to help each other and they can't figure out how to do it. Um, So I mean, there's this idea of brothers helping each other. He calls himself his brother's keeper, which of course is a biblical reference, but in the Bible, it's reversed. It's the Cain character, the prodigal character who says, I'm not my brother's keeper. 
But Mm. in the story, the brother fully owns, Norman's like, I want to be my brother's keeper, but I can't, I can't figure out how to do it. And Mm. yet he's not at all motivated to Mm. help his wife's brother. He's only doing it because these women have the powerful influence, which is another phrase he uses Mm -hmm. multiple times. He doesn't actually care about helping her brother. He thinks that Neil is beyond help from the moment he sees him. Mm. Yeah. But he wants desperately to help his own brother, which is that's it. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. That idea of God is love, but that only applies to their own family. Mm -hmm. Right. So Mm -hmm. he's trying to figure out how to love him and how to help him. And he, he doesn't know how they keep missing each other. Um, It's very obvious. They love each other deeply, but they don't know how there's a divide between them. Remember when they're driving to the fishing hole and they can't speak to each other somehow out of respect for the land until they get past the divide. Right. Mm -hmm. So again, the land is a metaphor for the relationship. Yeah. And then finally, Paul kind of, starts talking about the his, the new girlfriend he has or whatever. And he, it's yes. almost like, there's almost like a confessional nature to it. He's finally like, like he's finally willing to share something, but he has to be sort of out in the, out in the wilderness enough to, to, yeah. to be able to bring himself to do it. It's, and when he tells the story, David, about, he, he tells, Paul tells Norm this story about driving late one night and he's following a jackrabbit. And the jackrabbit kind of swerves suddenly and he drives off the side of the road. He tells us kind of in a in an anecdotal journalistic fashion. Yeah. It yeah. does not include what seems like the likely fact that he had had too much to drink that night. You know, so he kind of reveals but also stays hidden. Mm. And he does that all throughout the book. He reveals something, and it seems like maybe he is asking for help. Maybe he yeah. does want Norman to step in, but then he steps back and maybe this is part of being part of his like locale and his family. He can't just ask for what he needs. He has right. to be oblique about it. There's that really moving scene after, you know, he's had his, you know, he's a night, night of drunkenness and they're out that first day with Neil and they're up the river a little bit. And it's where, Norman is trying to catch that giant fish and he kind of gets in the too close to the trees. And then, uh, Paul kind of comes up and gives him advice. And then they sit on the bank for a while. And then out of the silence, he kind of says, do you need money or something like that? Mm -hmm. Basically saying, how can I help you? He's trying to find it, figure out the words to offer help. And Paul kind of rejects it. And then they kind of sit there for a while. And then eventually as they're walking away, you know, he, Paul says, all right, let's go back. We got to go back now. You're gonna be in trouble, but you know, did you meet your quota or whatever? But then as they're walking away, Paul puts his arm around Neil as if, you know, to kind of say, I know you're trying to help. And there's this, there's this in some ways, somewhat stereotypical male way of trying to figure out how to communicate with people you love and have sort of, you love, but have sort of a strained relationship with because you don't know how to communicate, you know, about your own weaknesses or with people who know you want, they that you know, want to help you or that you want to help. And, the inability to to communicate either gratefulness or um, I was going to say helpfulness, but that what's that? I was going to say gratefulness or need. Yeah, gratefulness. But maybe that's not what you were going to say, David. Well, I was going to say either gratefulness for someone who does help you, or the desire to help. You know, the, neither of them know how to express that on either side of that. And so there's this divide where, you know, they both 
they both do love each other, but their own flaws are getting in between them actually being able to connect and like join together as one river, so to speak. Right. Well, and I think one thing that, that Norman McLean, the author does craft wise that contributes to that feeling I have in reading this story of watching the quadruple axle is that it isn't just the story of the older brother trying his best. There's clues embedded in the story of failures on Norman's part to engage with Paul. And I think that's brilliant. After that drunken night, he, I mean, he refuses to hear the man who's trying to help Paul. It's the desk sergeant who calls him, who's like, your brother's in trouble. You need to help him. He's, he's in debt. He's drinking too much. There's people after him and we can't protect him anymore and you need to do it. And he basically just puts his hand over his eyes and his ears the same way Paul does about Mm. himself. And I think that the story needed that. So it isn't just kind of a sob story about how my brother pushed me away. Yeah. Well, we see the flaws, Norman's flaws, his pride even, and and his Mm -hmm. anger in relation to Neil. You know, Neil is the person who left. Right. right. And he has this sort of condescension about a place that he can't, he doesn't even really fit in with. He doesn't really belong to, but he wants to belong to, but then he also talks down to it or whatever. And there's on, in my, in my book, it's page 55, but he's talking to um, his mother-in-law and um, he says, I could feel all the excitement of losing the big fish going through the transformer and coming out as anger at my brother-in-law. I could also feel that I was repeating myself without quite saying the same thing. Even so, I asked, do you think I should help him? Yes, he said. I thought we were going to. He's talking to Paul here, actually. Uh, How, I asked, by taking him fishing with us. I've just told you, I said, he doesn't like to fish. Maybe so, my brother replied. But maybe what he likes is somebody trying to help him. And so Neil is, without saying it directly, but he is asking for help. And and Paul's the one mean, who recognizes it. Oh, 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 oh yeah. And and yeah. and but Norman, as much as he wants to help his brother, his pride and his anger, which you know he takes out, he, he's even becomes angry at Neil when he when he has his own flaws, right? When he has, makes a mistake fishing or whatever, that comes out as more, you know increasing anger at Neil. And he, the, to, to your point, Heidi, the, we don't have this like perfect, you know, Mother Teresa type character who's just trying to help everyone who rejects them. He, he, he almost is rejecting someone who is directly asking him for help when his own mother-in-law and his, and his wife are saying, please help my brother. You know, this is a man that needs help, but he only wants to help. You know, he has, his only real affection is for his own brother who's rejecting him, but who also knows that Neil needs help. Mm-hmm. So there's like this circle of failure and a flaw and cry for help and, Paul Norman is not excluded out of that circle of these three men who need help and are trying to offer help to each other. Exactly. He's part of it. Yes, he is. Or triangle or whatever you want to, whichever phrase you want to use or, or image right. you want to use. Tim, right. were you going to say something? Well, I, I just thought, I think in that scene, Paul is also signaling, <laughs> maybe he would like help. Right. You know, he he can see what's going on with Neil and what Neil needs because he's, He's a mirror in some ways of Neil. I mean, he's, he's so different. He's almost the antithesis in that he's a, 
pure Montana man. He's a man who knows the rivers, who knows the fish, who knows how to fish. Um, and he's kind of, he's bona fide in a way that Neil is plastic. Mm-hmm. However, both of them are in trouble. And I think Paul can recognize it in Neil in a way that Norman just doesn't want to deal with it. Right. Well, if we keep reading that section, I was just reading. So he says, Paul says to him, but maybe what he likes is somebody trying to help him. And there is sort of a childishness about that. He just likes to be helped, like someone to do stuff for him. Right. Talking about Neil there, but then we get the narrator and I'm really intrigued by this next sentence. He says, I still do not understand my brother. And there's a present tense to that as if to say years later, the story's over. Now that I'm telling it, I still don't understand him. You know, maybe, maybe, in, in the end, even though maybe by the end of the story, he's able to help him, there's still something of a mystery in human relationship, right? That doesn't necessarily get solved in the end. And there, that adds a layer of pathos to it. And then it says, he himself always turned aside any offer of help. This is what you were saying, Tim. Mm-hmm. But in some complicated way, he was surely talking about himself when he was talking about Neil needing help. Come on, right. he said, let's find him before he gets lost in the storm. I mean, that, that's such a good bit of double meaning there, right? Because on the one right. hand, it's just Paul saying, let's go get him before he gets lost because he doesn't know the terrain. He's going to get lost out here and soaking, get pneumonia or something. But on the other hand, it's the narrator having Paul say exactly what is true about himself, you know, right. metaphorically. And then it says, this is what I was mentioning earlier. He tried to put his arm around my shoulders, but his fish basket with big tails sticking out of it came between us and made it difficult. We both right. looked clumsy. I am trying to offer him help and he in trying to thank me for it. Let's get a move on, I said. We hit the trail and started upstream. And I love that that little scene ends with them trying to walk upstream together, almost arm in arm, but unable to because there's a basket of giant fish, fish tails the between them. This is the fishing metaphor, right? This is, what, this is why the story is so brilliant. This is the craft and the content, the form and the content weaving together just so beautifully. I want to clap after you just read that little paragraph. Because it's that, thank you. <laughs> it's this fishing metaphor, right? That there's these, there's this life that under the surface is teeming with life. And the art of the brothers is to try to land it right? To try to catch it. And sometimes they can, and sometimes they can't. But in the end, the fish, the basket of mysteries is still between them. They can't, Mm. they can't solve it. No matter how much of the art of fishing they master, there's still all this life under the surface. There's still this beauty and this grandeur that captivates them and haunts them and draws them in. They're haunted by waters, right? That's how the story ends. But it's a famous line and it should be because it's a masterful line that Mm. the waters are life's mysteries and Mm. there's a grace to interacting with that mystery that no matter how well you master it, like Paul, it will still take you under. Mm. And, and, and there's this sense that, that even, you know, even when you do your best to help someone, Mm -hmm. that mystery, it's not like even when you find a solution for them, or a way to help them that actually is meaningful, that mystery just goes away. Like even people who you are genuinely close to, a spouse or you know, a best friend or something like that, there is still the mystery of the, of the human individual soul that is always going to be in the way of truly being, you know, truly be, there's always going to be that river running between you, right? Yes. Yes. Um, 
one of the things that I really like about this book is how vividly drawn the secondary characters are. Hmm. We don't get much about Jesse, Norman's wife. We don't get much about Norman's mom. We don't, we get a little bit about a little bit more about Norman's dad. Um, but in a 120 page book, we don't get very much about any of them. And they are for me, such brightly drawn characters. Like I feel like I know them and the role that they play in this family. And he does it with such an economy of words, such an economy of words. The character who Neil connects with <laughs> and then brings out to the, to the hunting camp or the fishing camp or whatever is, is I think a great example of those secondary characters. Yeah. Yeah. Who are so well drawn. Rawhide. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even her name, you're like, I know, I know a lot about her just by that name. <laughs> exactly. It's a lot more than I want to know about her. Yeah. It takes very little, uh, it takes very little, you know, real uh, description for us to feel like she is, you know, straight out of a Coen Brothers movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, the pr- the prose is is very. It's so economical, and there's a scene that I actually cannot remember if it's in the movie or the book. I think it's just in the movie, but I think um, I'll describe it, and then you guys tell me if it's in the book. I just can't remember because I haven't. It's been two months since I reread it. Um, Norman as a boy is commissioned to write a one page essay by his father. They're homeschooling on the Montana frontier. He writes the essay, brings it to the father. The father marks it up, hands it back to him and says half as long. Norman, the boy retreats up to his room. Heidi, is this in the movie or is in the book? I've never seen the movie, but I don't remember it from... So it's only in the movie yeah, and it's a brilliant scene because it's like, it says so much about the real Norman McLean's prose. So the boy retreats up to the room, writes it half as long, brings it back, father marks it, hands it back to him and says, half as long. The boy goes upstairs, works on the markings, writes it half as long, brings it down. And the father says, Good. And the boy sprints for the door so he can go fishing with his brother. It's so, so, so good. It says so much about the father. It says so much about the boy. It says written. It's so he does not waste a word. It actually, I think of all of the prose that we've read in the last few years on close reads, it most closely reminds me of Flannery O'Connor's. Now, the, the, the plots and the themes are very different. But the prose is like Flannery O'Connor's most advanced work. You really feel like if a word was moved or changed or dropped, this whole story would be different because it's so economically told. And I feel the same way about this. It's just every word had a lot of thought put into it. And the book in a lesser writer's hands would easily be 250 pages. It's half as long. It's 120. But the the thing I was struck by, I love what you're saying because it, he does that without taking out the drama, right? Like it's economical with still the drama there. In fact, there's a sentence right after the scene that we that I just read, where it says the storm came on a wild horse and rode over us, and it's just it's a one sentence paragraph. Mm-hmm. There's a ton of 
meaning in a sentence like that. There's yeah. a ton of drama. You get the whole scene. Like you can imagine that storm. And it harkens back to like the ancient Greek myths, right? There's something, you know, like the Odyssey about a line like that. But also it's, you know, 10 words or whatever it is. Um, 12 words, I guess. Very economical, very to the point. It's a whole paragraph. He doesn't need to explain what he means by that. It's precise, but dramatic at the same time. And that's something that O'Connor was able to do and really great writers are, 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 are able to do. And it's, I mentioned Hemingway earlier. This, this book reminds me a lot of Hemingway's writing, who, of yeah. course, was an influence on O'Connor. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing that it shares with O'Connor is that O'Connor, it, I always feel like Flannery O'Connor is winking at me when I read her. Like there's a, there's a wryness about her that McLean gets also. Um, I wonder if I could read a uh, paragraph. For you me, said, it's on. You want to do a close 17. reading? I want to do a close reading. For me, it's on page 17, middle of the page, and it begins, then an odd thing happened. Okay. Then yeah. an odd thing happened. So the background is Norman is in the, the Blackfoot River. He's not had a lot of success fishing. His brother's kind of coaching him from the side. Uh, and he's kind of studying the river, looking to where he should put his fly. Then an odd thing happened. I saw him. A black back rose and sank in the foam. In fact, I imagine I saw spine on his do- spines on his dorsal fin. And I said to myself, God, he couldn't be so big you could see his fins. I even added, you wouldn't even have seen the fish in all that foam if you hadn't first thought he would be there. But I shouldn't, couldn't shake the conviction that I had seen the big back of a big fish because... As someone often forced to think, I know that often I would not see a thing unless I thought of it first. It's so clever. It's so, so clever. Good. It's on page 21 if people, for people who have the, uh, the paperback uh, Chicago edition. Oh, it's so good. Well, and then he, because it's, again, this is, is he talking about fishing? Is he talking about an analogy? Is this a metaphor for his relationship with his brother or for the mysteries within himself? Because then it goes on to have this dialogue between fear and hope, two different fears. Mm -hmm. And to talk about the nature of fear and hope and how that relates to fishing, which is obvious that he's talking about Paul and probably even himself. So it's so layered and beautifully written. Mm. You know, lately I have become more and more convinced that the thing that really makes, the thing that makes an artful piece of writing separate from kind of a, a ripping good story but that it's it's not memorable. You finish it and you you put it down and you don't think about the story again. More and more, I think that the difference between those two types of writing is the ability of the writer to theme. And I mean by theme, I'll, I'll use this book, McLean's book, as an example. Every word, every sentence, every paragraph, every page is all talking about this kind of this mixed up kind not mixed up this um this blurred line between art 
religion, family, belonging. Like those kind of four quadrants are driving this book and you can see it everywhere. It's everywhere. And the way that he's, the way that McLean selects the stories that he's going to tell and where he puts his eye, it's all following that theme. And it's so taut and so unified that it gets into you. It really gets into your heart. And so when you put it down, you can't just think, that was a great story about fishing and family. No, it's more than that. You know, it is about fishing and family, but it's much more than that. And you're, you kind of like, you can't let it go for that reason. Right. So I have one to read. Can I read one paragraph? (sighs) What page are you on, Heidi? Fine. I'm on page 20. So Uh that would be a couple ahead for David and for the other paperback. But I think you and I have the same okay. page numbers. What's the paragraph start with? <laughs> Once he quit wobbling, so it's two paragraphs. Mm-hmm. Once he quit wobbling, he shook himself duck dog fashion with his feet spread apart, his body lowered and his head flopping. Here's where it gets good. Then he steadied himself and began to cast and the whole world mm. turned to water. Below him was the multitudinous river And where the rock had parted around him, big grained vapor rose. The many molecules of water left in the wake of his line made momentary loops of gossamer, disappearing so rapidly in the rising big grained vapor that they had to be retained in memory to be visualized as loops. The spray emanating from him was finer grained still and enclosed him in a halo of himself. The halo of himself was always there and always disappearing as if he were candlelight flickering about three inches from himself. The images of himself and his line kept disappearing into the rising vapors of the river, which continually circled to the tops of the cliff where, after becoming a wreath in the wind, they became rays of the sun. This is... uh... Where to me mm. it reminds this I had like a bunch two pages here all marked up. Yep. With long lines down the side of the margins. And this is where to me it's the most like Hemingway. Yes. There's even there's even little like the use of um the hyphenated. Uh-huh. You know, it has Many a big Hemingway. Yeah. Big grained, finer grained. And then that sentence, for example, where it ends with um in a halo of himself, and then the next sentence begin, the halo of himself was himself. always there. There's like a cadence to it. That is like Hemingway that that slows you down. Right. And it's rhythmic. It is. And there's it's there's a water rhythm. It is. It. It's that's exactly what I was just about to say, David. That it's like Hemingway, but it ha- he has this, this difference. And that's that it feels like a river. Like huh, the, yeah. the the cadence of it is is this rhythmic flowing, um, just like the cast or um or the river itself and he repeats himself his sentences circle back upon himself he'll he'll repeat things many times on the same page if he wants you to pay attention to it right and close read and close readers always know repetition in great writers if they're mediocre to bad writers it probably is just a mistake but with a great writer it's not it's purposeful we're supposed to pay attention to it and in this story 
again, it's like landing that triple axle. It's every time he repeats himself, it's meaningful. The, um, in a couple paragraphs, it, it begins, he called this shadow casting. And frankly, I don't know whether to believe this theory behind it, that the fish are alerted by the shadows of flies passing over the water by the first casts. So hit the, fl- so hit the fly the moment it touches the water. Um, it is more or less the working up an appetite theory. The shadow casting thing is interesting if you look at the form of this section, because I think he's trying to write in a way that mirrors that concept, as you're saying, the form and content of shadow casting. I can't, you should read this next paragraph, the next one after you stop there, the one that begins the river above and below, because this might be, might be my, one of my favorite paragraphs in the whole book. You read it. I didn't want to be greedy, so I only read one, but I, I have that all marked up too. So you read that one. <laughs> all right. The river above and below his rock was all big rainbow water. And he would cast hard and low upstream, skimming the water with his fly, but never letting it touch. Then he would pivot, reverse his line in a great oval above his head, and drive his line low and hard downstream, again skimming the water with his fly. He would complete this grand circle four or five times, creating an immensity of motion which culminated in nothing if you did not know, even if you could not see, that now somewhere out there, a small fly was washing itself on a wave. Shockingly, immensity would return as the big blackfoot and the air above it became iridescent with the arched sides of a great rainbow. So good. The arched sides of a great rainbow. (laughs) With rainbow capitalized. Mm -hmm. It's perfect. Well, and this, this is when the, this is right about when the, the couple comes, when the Mm -hmm. woman comes and and sits behind, they just watch him cast. And then there's a reference later to, I think it's the desk sergeant who, I should check on this. Maybe you guys will, will know, but when the desk sergeant is trying to draw Norman, the narrator's attention to Paul's problems and all that Norman, he dismisses it and says, I just want to remember him like I was a woman standing behind him, watching him cast. This is how he wants to remember Paul is the master of an art, not someone taken under by the mysteries of life, but someone who can, who's mastered them. And that's Norman's great mistake or failure, or maybe it's just part of the nature of not being able to help somebody, the story doesn't solve it. And I certainly can't, but this moment in time, with the rainbow and the water, this is what Paul wants, excuse me, this is what Norman wants to remember about Paul. The rainbow is an interesting image there because I don't think you mentioned that it's capital. I don't think it's necessarily that the mystery is like gone. Right. I think that there's, the rainbow is representative of the, of like the hope in the mystery. You know, that in the midst of the mystery, it's not that Paul has everything is solved, even out on the water. Like he doesn't always have the solution, but there's a piece there's like a hope in the mystery right. when he's in the midst of that, you know, the, the in the rainbow, because there's vision, there's like a, wa- uh, the, the way the sun is shining on the water as he's casting is creating a rainbow. Like it literally looks like a rainbow because of the way the light's shining through. And right. And so, you know, there's a hopefulness, I think, in that. Tim, you're going to, there's on the verge of your tip of your tongue. On page two, there's (laughs) a paragraph about um, 
kind of father's theological convictions, I think that really shows us how Norman thinks about his brother, Paul. So it begins as a Scot and a Presbyterian. So it's maybe third full paragraph. As a Scot and a Presbyterian, my father believed that man was by nature a mess and had fallen from an original state of grace. Somehow I early developed the notion that he had done this from falling by falling from a tree. As for my father, I never knew whether he believed God was a mathematician, but he certainly believed God could count and that only by picking up God's rhythms were we able to regain power and beauty. Unlike many Presbyterians, he often used the word beautiful. I think that is how Norman, the older brother, sees Paul. (laughs) He is by nature a mess and fallen from his original state of grace, but he is also through his art, he has retained some of, he has, he has regained kind of some of the beauty of the original state. And I think that um, those two things, Norman doesn't want to look, he, he wants to remember Paul in his beautiful state. And he doesn't want to look at the fact that Paul is by nature a mess. Right. I totally agree because of something he says on page four to this is to piggyback on what you just said, Tim, um, that their father believes that all good things trout as well as eternal salvation come by grace and grace comes by art and art does not come easy. I think this is the closest we're going to get to a thesis statement. Yeah. Right. Because this is a mysterious story. And so as Flannery O'Connor said, we keep comparing them. You know, if you could, if you could just state that your story in a thesis, don't write a story. (laughs) Um, So there is always a mystery to it, as you said, David. And I think you're right. There's a hopefulness, but the hope is found in the fishing because fishing, fly fishing is something that Paul can do that doesn't come easy. It's art, right? And art and grace comes by art, according to them. That's their theology. You have to participate. If you give up, if you throw in the towel, if you become an alcoholic and a gambler and throw it all away, in some sense, you're forfeiting access to grace, according mm. to this kind of theology. They're hot. And so what Paul wants, or excuse me, what Norman wants to remember, the real, the true, the imago Dei, right? The image of God in Paul is Paul fishing because in that sense, he's participating in grace because he is participating in, in the interaction of nature and art. Mm. I want to point something out. We, so many of these classics that we discuss beneath them or alongside them, however you want to position it, are these very sophisticated theological outlooks. (laughs) Very, very sophisticated. I mean, we've talked about Flannery O'Connor, her understanding of Catholic theology and how it's just, it's woven into everything that she writes in her short stories. And it is so articulate. I mean, it's, it's not, it's, she's presenting it in stories, obviously. She's not presenting it propositionally. Same here. 
with McLean, there's this really sophisticated vision of sin and of redemption and of the role that art plays in separating those two things. We've talked about doing Dostoevsky on the show. He has this really, really advanced, acute vision of um, Russian Christianity, how it will affect what his hopes are for the motherland of Russia. Even Tolstoy, who in some ways is kind of um, a naturalist, he has a theology that's just so keenly stated through the lives of his characters. And I, I, I really, I, I bring that to you guys' attention because I think sometimes we think of the two as sort of like enemies of each other, or at least that's sort of like they have a negative impact on each other. But I just think it's really noteworthy that the writers that we are still reading and that we really, really respect, they have these sort of theological visions that are um, highly advanced. They're very, they've done their work. (laughs) They have really done some work and they know how these kind of, they, they know how to articulate these theological visions in real day-to-day life and relationships. And McLean, to me, he's just one of the best that I've read this century Mm. in articulating that vision. I love how you're kind of on that note, he he deepens it by, there's that line that always had to be called a rod. If someone called it a pole, my father looked at him as a sergeant in the United States Marines and looked at a recruit (laughs) who had just called a rifle a gun. Um, On the one hand, there's an imprecision to it. You know, there's like a, it's a clear, you don't know what your tool actually is or does or what its purpose is for or anything like that. But also the, the image of a rod is obviously a crucial one. It's kind of a spare the rod, spoil the child situation. That's, that's, uh, woven into the text that, that I'm trying to figure out what exactly I th- make of, because obviously Paul has his problems. Um, and he wasn't spared the rod and felt like his parents were strict. So there's like, that adds a level of complication to it that I think is kind of, you know, worth, uh, that I'm going to be keeping an eye on anyway, throughout the rest of the book. Speaking of which we have gone for, over our allotted time now. So that will be my final, my, the thing I will be looking for is the concept of, you know, what does that line mean in the rest of the book and, and in the sort of evolution of Paul's character, Tim, do you have any final thoughts or anything that you are going to be looking for as you reread the second half of this novel for the, I don't know, 700th time. <laughs> the section that you and Heidi um, read will become kind of an essential plot point later in the book. Paul's Paul's ability with the rod, with his fishing rod, is it's just crucial to how this novel develops and and the tragedy behind it. Hmm. Yeah. Ellipsis. Dun dun dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I love how an ellipsis like that sound effect dun, 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 is dun. literally just the onomatopoeia of an ellipsis. Yeah. Yeah. I've, never, I've actually never thought of that before in my life until now. I'm really learning so much. It's a pretty good one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what are your um, final thoughts? Okay. So I have never read this story before, partly because 
I didn't know how great it was. And it because you about, didn't trust Tim's judgment. <laughs> I did. But but I I stories like this. I'm going to say this carefully. Stories like this <laughs> remind me that I am a woman and that there's things I don't understand about men. So I love this story. And, and one thing I'm curious about and is, cause this is, you know, there's so many layers to this is um, the impact that the women have. Like they have just this very big impact on the men in the story. And I was watching that, but there's something really masculine about how a man's hobbies and leisure become a stand-in for, um, or uh, stand-in is the wrong word. Represent? Yeah, but it's deeper that an embodiment of an emotional life of their interior world. And I think that that's really true as I read hobby stories, like big game hunting story, you know, Hemingway stories, stories like this. Um, you know, even Woodhouse does that a lot in a comic way with like mm. golf and... Um, Drinking. Yeah, right. That there's something about hobbies that inhabit a bigger space in the interior world of men than I think women really understand or get. Like party or sports, right? And I and I think as a woman, I the only way I know that is by reading these kinds of stories. Because I, a lot of times men can't articulate it, but it matters so much. Right. So anyway, what were you gonna say, Tim? I, I was gonna say that needs to be put on a poster. I mean, I really <laughs> it's I, a little I, honestly, for a poster, but we can make the typeface pretty small. <laughs> I, I honestly, I think that is so insightful. I think it is absolutely true. I think it's absolutely true. And I don't know that I could have articulated that. Um, Wait, that's what you just said. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't know that I could articulate. Like, I'm like, I believe what Heidi just said, and it's true about me, but I don't know that I could have recognized it as true until Heidi just said it. Those, I think that was really... It's really profound. Yeah, you know, you've actually... I may need to pay you for the next 30 seconds, but the you actually just kind of ex express something that I've been thinking about a lot the last few years because I find that my own... I, I always feel like I'm never... I'm going to be like one of those people who's interested in many things but never able to actually be good at like, you know, any one of them because I'm too... Like I get interested in many things and then I kind of don't spend enough time on one to get me to master one. Um, and, and like in some ways some of the things that I'm interested in, say, say, we'll call them hobbies. I think that's what you called it. That's probably the best word are in many ways, like they're subcultures that are in opposition to each other. Huh. And I find that to be disorienting and like, huh. and, and, um, and in some ways it's discouraging sometimes. Right. Um, and, and so maybe that's why, maybe what you're saying is why I feel, feel that way because, oh. because there is something right it embodies something, some sort of those, those hobbies, those things embody something about me or within me or something like that. And then those, those things are sort of clashing, but it also might just be that there are like you say the world of poetry and the world of sports are in opposition, but that might be purely something that is a sort of social construct. And the social construct is what's because it's that way in our society, it leads to sort of like a dissonance within me. I don't know, Tim, right. do you have, 
Dude, do you know I, what I'm saying? I know exactly what you're saying. And I remember, I mean, this is just going to kind of echo what Heidi was saying earlier. I cannot tell you how many times I thought when I was playing basketball every day and I was just like, I was fit and I loved the game. I remember thinking when I was playing, this is what it feels like to live a poem. That's what it, this is what it feels like. And I suspect Paul McLean, not even consciously, he's like, he's living a poem when he's on the river. Right. (laughs) Well, and that's why I always think women should pay attention when their men love something. It's not, it's like, it's not just some kind of like, competition to yeah or competition to their you know the attention or the family or work or whatever's important that there's something inherently that matters about that and and that speaks to the man that they love whether it's their son or their dad or their husband or whatever like and so because in all of these stories the description of it and I'm like Oh, like I would never go, I've, I've never been fly fishing. I'm not interested in fly fishing, but in reading this, I'm like, oh, this is why it matters to the soul of a person who's doing it. Like, this is what's actually happening when you're fly fishing. Why, but what, is this a a male thing? I mean, women have hobbies, right? Of course, of course. Yes. And I'm not trying to draw, draw some kind of false distinction between men and women. I'm not trying to moralize. It's just... I, if I feel something big, I literally just say it. Mm. <laughs> like, hey, somebody I love, come listen to what I feel. Or like I pray about it or write it in my journal or something. And I'm not saying everyone's exactly the same. Mm-hmm. All women are like this. All men are like this. But there's mm-hmm. like, when my husband says to me, I love golf, like I should pay attention to that. Because something is happening there that matters to him. That if he could write like this, I'd probably get it. But I have to just let him go experience it. And to what you said, David, there's sometimes there's like these these things that we do, or um, whether you're a man or a woman, that kind of speak to those, embody those fractures or different parts of us that we can't quite resolve. But if we have some way to embody it, it, it it's helpful to us. So anyway, these are, this is what I was thinking about as I read this fishing story that I've never read before because I don't fish and I don't, you know, I didn't think it would have this subtlety and this beauty to it, which of course it does because it's an enduring story. But when I read hobby stories, fishing stories, hunting stories, golf stories, whatever it is, I get it. Baseball stories. Like I'll read it and be like, oh, this is why baseball is important. But like, I don't intuitively recognize that. Mm. So Heidi, my final thought. <laughs> that's the best. That's such a great, I'm, I'm like, I'm really touched over here. I'm really touched. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, Heidi understands. I want it, to, I have like tears in my eyes. It really is. <laughs> I'm really touched. Thank you for saying all that. No, you're welcome guys. You guys are the best. <laughs> you know, you, you just said something that was kind of interesting to me because you said something about how if, if Scott could write, then, well, I don't, you said if he could write really well, then he then you might understand it better. But then I got to thinking, well, maybe like, maybe the ability to write great sentences, for a lot of people, that would ruin it, right? 
Mm. Like it's right. the, you know, um, it's the experience it, itself. Yeah, to, it would feel like you're overanalyzing it and then you begin to like, you feel like you're a little bit too, I was going to say inside baseball, but too, um, like it takes you outside of it too much because the point is what the experience, as you said, does to reset you or they even talk in the book, like you just got to, we got to go out to the cabin for, to reset. He talks about that right at the section where we stopped. He tells his wife, don't it probably be best if we go out to the fishing cabin to reset. And she says, yes. And in a sense, there's like this, there's this degree to which she's, she's angry at him for leaving her brother behind. And yet you also get this feeling that she, she, she sees the need for what right. that does for like his, his soul. And we're going to get more into her, I think as we go, but I assume we'll talk more about her next week or, or in the following weeks. But anyway, I think we've gone long enough, Tim. Heidi, thanks so much. Tim, thanks for recommending the book. I'm so glad that I did. I'm glad we're doing it together. So I'm going to tease something here. We have something big coming for our Patreon listeners. The end of January. It's big. It's large. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a big literally thing. Literally big. Yeah. yeah. It's coming at the end of January. That's all I'm going to say for now. More coming soon. Dun, dun, dun. Exactly. I was waiting. I was so hoping <laughs> someone was going <laughs> to. So uh, be on the lookout for that if you are a Patreon supporter. And if you're not a Patreon supporter, then you, you're going to want to be by the end of January. Let's just put it that way. So, you know, it costs $5 a month to be a Patreon supporter at the level that this big thing is going to be coming at you. And that's like one really nice, good latte, right? Like that's one latte. So that, that seems, you know, like a reasonable trade given how big this thing is going to be that's coming. <laughs> um, <laughs> so be on the lookout for that. Uh, don't forget, you can join the conversation again on social media. It's at Close Reads Pods. And then uh, we have the Facebook group. You can you can join that just by searching Close Reads Podcast Discussion Group or Close Reads. Email address is closereadspodcast at gmail.com. This uh, series of episodes is going to end a little bit sooner because there's obviously only three of them. So be ready for your with your questions right away. We will post the thread after this episode sometime this week we'll post a thread for you to post your questions and you can also send those via email as well with that for Heidi White for Tim McIntosh and for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network I'm David Kern thanks so much for listening and happy reading talk to you next week Mm -hmm.